We believe that God speaks to our kids, and you guys heard that rose, that word that Rose gave about the, the crab, crab ship, crab boats, crab, crab boat. And Sirsha came up to her, and before that word had been given, had been drawing crabs on, on her, her little coloring sheet here. So we believe God speaks very, very clearly to our kids, and we teach them to pay attention to pictures and words. And uh, so we're all learning and growing together. It's so awesome to have Alec back, and uh, we love Alec and Crystal, and they're, they're beautiful children, uh, been such an important part of our church family, still are, even though they're now journeying with the Catholic Church, they're still part of one of our home groups, and, and just best friends, and uh, so glad, glad for the gifts that they are to us, and for the, for the, the spiritual gifts that the Lord has given them as well, and so happy that Alec could teach today in, in our series. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for Alec and, and just what you've been speaking to him. And I just pray for freedom today for him to just be who he is and, and continue to, 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 to just be family, to be with us as family today and, and to share out of his heart the treasures that you've invested in him. Lord, we just open our hearts, empower us. Lord, in these lazy days of August, empower us still to hear and to be attentive to what you're doing. In Jesus' name. Amen. And I had to, sorry, I forgot to mention there is a chili wagon meeting right after just to discussing the future of the chili wagon with regards to the move that we're making as a church and how that affects chili wagons. So is that going to be right in here, guys? Okay, so right here after the service today. Thank you. Thank you. The feeling's mutual. It's good to be back with you all. But I don't, I don't feel particularly lucky to be preaching today, to be honest with you. After not being around for a good long while to get assigned a passage that uh, has been most quoted passage of scripture forever. How do you, how do you, uh, how do you cut through some of the noise that is going to be lingering in our heads because of our familiarity? So I'm not sure if it's a blessing or a curse to be preaching on 1 Corinthians 13. Um, you know, all I have to say is, because on, on one hand it is a blessing, since all I have to say is love is patient, love is kind, and immediately you're already thinking of a million weddings you've been to. You, you know the passage. You know it. You've heard this passage, and you've heard it quoted, which is exactly why, on the other hand, it's kind of a curse. Our familiarity with these words from Paul can make it really hard to, to hear through the din. See, we're in our series on thermostats and thermometers, and we've been asking some really good questions about the relationship between the church and culture. Who is influencing who? Is the church called to be a thermostat? And so we set the temperature of the culture around us and we influence the culture. Or is the church more of a thermometer? Which means we're being better at being influenced. So we reflect the culture around us. Well, because our passage is so familiar to everybody involved, inside and outside the church, it's going to take more ambition on our part if we're going to play the role of influencer rather than influenced. For instance, I really doubt that 1 Corinthians 11, two chapters previous, has inspired any popular songs on the radio these days. You know, the chapter from Paul about head coverings and worship. It's great material for a pop song. But at some point today, you will hear, definitely, the DJ play Macklemore's Same Love. Whatever God you believe in, we come from the same one. Strip away the fear underneath, it's all the same love. About time we raised up. It's a sermon, really, for supporting gay marriage that concludes with words from Paul. The words that conclude 
in chapter 13, love is patient. Love is kind. I'm not crying on Sundays. Now, I'm not debating gay marriage today, thankfully. That's not what we will be doing. I'm just asking, which way is the influence going? Is the church influencing Macklemore's exegesis here? Because that's what it is. Or is it actually the other way around? Ironically. Also, I'd really like to know if Macklemore read the 11th chapter of Corinthians about head coverings. Anyway, see, there's a number of scriptures like this where they're poetic and slightly vague. So we read them in a way that makes us feel good. And then we quote them all the time in a bunch of contexts. But we rarely do so in such a way that the original insight comes shining through. Some people may not even realize that particular phrases we use all the time come from the Bible. For instance, the writings on the wall or the blind leading the blind. These kinds of scriptures have so influenced culture, they join the throng of other snippets of popular wisdom. And even if they do happen to mention God or whatever, they may or may not be from scripture. For instance, God helps those who help themselves. But also, if God lives inside you, like everyone says, I hope he likes enchiladas, because that's what he's getting. You know, not exactly scripture, but it sounds like it could be. Maybe one of those proverbs or something. You can thank Jack Handy for that one. That's another deep thought from Jack. Anyway, our task today is to be good listeners to what the Spirit has to say to the church. It's kind of a long introduction, but really I just wanted to say that if we're going to be influencers of our culture, we need to hear what the Spirit is influencing us to hear today for the sake of our our people around us. Let's read the passage. If somebody else want to read it, I'm going to do a lot of talking today, so it'd be great. Thank you, Christine. Someone else? Mm. Somebody else? you. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your spirit to enlighten our hearts and our minds. Lord, reveal this word to us in such a way that we would grab hold of it, that it would grow in our hearts. 
Lord, do not let it lie fallow, but let it sink deep and give us the understanding that we need to live it out and let it grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, trying to preach a sermon like this, where you have the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians, is kind of like trying to eat an elephant. The way I see things, there's basically three chunks to this elephant. Chunk one is where Paul says that if you ain't got love, you ain't got nothing. Chunk two is where he says he might need to define what he means by love in some way, so he goes to some length to do so. Chunk three is where Paul concludes with a panoramic view of what we might call the biggest picture. He does nothing less than summarize all of cosmic history, showing how love spans both this age of imperfection and our heavenly existence. We are eating an elephant, but instead of one bite at a time, we'll take it in chunks. So, first, if you ain't got love, you ain't got nothing. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels but don't have love, gong show. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, and I have faith and knowledge and move mountains, nothing. If I don't have love. If I give all I possess to the poor, give my body to hardship so I boast, but don't have love, I gain nothing. I want to get into this by jarring your imagination a little bit and suggest that the logic of chunk one is exactly the same as what we find in Matthew's gospel, chapter seven, where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff? Didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. For some people, this is a pretty scary passage. But I'll be honest, to me, I think it's an incredible gift to us who are stuck here in the meantime, in the time before the face-to-face that we're going to get to at the end of the chapter. See, it's a gift because some of us, like myself, are so tempted to define ourselves by what we do for God. And for me, this passage quickens my heart, and it reminds me always to come back to the main and the plain. Do I know him? Beyond every other measurement of worth, beyond anything I can do for God, no matter how good that all might be, God finds a way to humiliate us, doesn't he? And he reminds us that there's one thing needful, to know him. Stop fussing so much. Make sure we are actually sharing a relationship. Because the one who does the will of the Father is the one who knows Jesus. And outside of that, he actually says, we're practicing lawlessness. Well, that's exactly the same sentiment as Paul's statement here in chunk one. And I mean exactly the same. He says we might be doing some amazing things. We might speak the very language of angels. But if we don't know Jesus, we're as good as a fart machine. If we've, I almost didn't use that. I asked Crystal last night at like 1030, should I use fart machine? And she's like, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) If we've got brains so big. We could gobble up Einstein like it were candy. Or if we've got spiritual insight, we can read people's mail like they're Twitter feeding all their darkest secrets on their foreheads. Or if we can juggle Mount Baker like it was nothing with the power of our faith. But we aren't fostering a true relationship with Jesus. We are nothing. Some might be wondering why I'm talking about Jesus. 
Why am I talking about knowing Jesus when Paul simply said, if I don't have love? I'm doing that on purpose. I'm intentionally blending these passages because I want to convince you that they are both aimed at pointing us to our communion with God in Christ. If we can't hear that, we're not listening to Paul in 1 Corinthians. To not have love is already to depart from the Christ who called us before he has anything to say about it. Because the love Paul is talking about to the Corinthian church is not an abstract concept. It's concrete. Because he's talking about love as a bond of unity in a specific church, a specific community made of flesh and blood people like me and you. So he's talking about love as a source of unity in the body of Christ. The love chapter is simply a reflection on the same love Jesus is talking about when he says in John 13, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. If we don't know first how he has loved us, we can't understand the love that Paul's talking about in Corinthians 13. They are one and the same. If I am not a living reflection of the love Christ has shown me, then all my talk about love will come out like Charlie Brown's parents. So there's nothing inappropriate about my invoking Christ here. Because it's only because of our union with Christ that the love Paul's talking about makes sense to us, let alone to the culture around us. And with that in mind, I'm going to play you a song. If I can. This is a song by um, my favorite musician, Tom Waits. Thank you. Favorite musician who's influenced me from culture, by the way. But uh, he wrote this song. It's called The House Where Nobody Lives. Usually when you're overtired and um, squished for time, you put in too much. So this might be one of those moments where I've done too much, but that's okay. I hope. We'll see. All right. There's a house on my block that's abandoned and cold. The folks moved out of it a long time ago. And they took all their things and they never came back. It looks like it's haunted with the windows all cracked. And everybody calls it the house. The house where nobody lives Well once it had laughter Once it held dreams Did they throw them away? Did they know what it means? Did someone's heart break? Or did someone do somebody wrong? The pain was all cracked 
It was peeled off of the wood. The papers were stacked on the porch where I stood. And the weeds had grown up just as high as the door. There were birds in the chimney and an old chest of drawers. Looks like no one ever come back to the house where nobody lives. Once it had laughter, once it had dreams, did they throw them away? Do they know what it means? Did someone's heartbreak. Or did someone do somebody wrong? So if you find someone, someone to have, someone to hold, don't trade them for silver. Oh, don't trade it for gold. Because I have all of life's treasures, and they're fine and they're good. They remind me houses are just made of wood what makes a house grand it ain't the roof or the doors if there's love in a house it's a palace for sure without love it ain't nothing but a house a house where nobody lives Without love, it ain't nothing but a house, a house where nobody lives. Thanks. I, I didn't want to play his version of the music because some people wouldn't be able to get over his voice. It'd be too distracting. I love his voice. Kind of sounds like you got ran over by a car. Anyway, I, I thought about that song this week because of how appropriate it is for the moment we're in as a church, as a specific community, as flesh and blood people that come here and together make up Vancouver Eastside Vineyard. We're going to pack up our things and make a new home somewhere else. So what's that place going to look like? Is there going to be a bunch of junk out in the front yard? Weeds as high as the door? Probably not. Somebody's going to cut them down. Will it be full of all kinds of treasures, all silver and gold? Uh, no. <laughs> Most definitely not. So how will we know if we've found the right place? What do we need to make it feel like a temple, like a palace? I bear witness that we have already got it. We are here and have lasted so long only because we've found someone to have and hold. It's only by holding on to Jesus, the only foundation, as Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3 or 4, I can't remember, that we will find ourselves in a house full of love. So no matter what happens with the externals, let's remember Paul's advice, Allah Tom waits, without love, this ain't nothing but a church where nobody lives. But if you need some clarity about what a church like that looks like when it is filled with love, if you need a checklist, then you're ready to eat more elephant. So chunk two. Anybody need a break? Okay, we'll plow on. 
Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It keeps no records, uh, sorry, it, isn't, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So what do we say now? Because despite being the most quoted section of the most quoted chapter, I'd say this section can also run the risk of being the most boring if we treat it the wrong way. Because, yeah, it goes some way to define love. But we could easily add a bunch of other stuff that Scripture rightly says love is. So it's not exhaustive or anything. It does give us some indication of what Paul's thinking when he makes these statements about what love does. But a definition is only good as its application, which means we can quote the passage till we're blue in the face and argue the definition, but that's of no consequence to the world around us unless we tell stories about the love, what love is doing in our lives. All I'm saying is that definitions don't set the thermostat unless they prove their worth in practice. And unless we have the bravery to define love by our actions, we're just a bunch of comfortable people, hardly empowered to influence the world around us. At best, we might hope to resist the influences of our culture, but even that might be hard to do. In fact, why don't we take a pop culture tour of a few alternative definitions of love? We might ask ourselves if any of these uh, have actually taken root in our hearts, if we bought into any of these. I've already mentioned Macklemore, but for those with a more, more of a monster ballad sensibility, what about Nazareth? Love is patient, love is kind? Nope, love hurts. Love scars, love wounds, and Mars. And no, I'm not going to play this version for you. We're not going to do this one. I know it's not true. It's not true. Love's just a lie made to make you blue. How about love story? Anybody remember that? You've identified yourself as fairly old. Uh, <laughs> love means never having to say you're sorry. How about those with a bit more obscure sense of taste? Brack? Anyone remember Brack from Space Ghost? I don't think this is going to work, but I'm going to click it anyway. Anyway, what he would be saying right now is, love is a happy time in the universe. It's when the male part of the species goes to the female part of the species and then says, hey, you want to go on a date? And she says, oh, well, yes, I'd like to go on a date, if you're lucky. Now you go to a restaurant, and she orders something called a salad. And then he gets a piece of beef, which he eats. And that, to me, ladies and gentlemen, is love. Kind of makes you cry, doesn't it? That's what he would have said had that worked. Now, obviously, these are some pretty uh, funny examples of what love is to our pop culture. But how many of us actually believe in some of them? To some degree, anyway, at the end of the day, our culture is telling the truth, and love is just a lie. How many, give us, how many of us give lip service to the idea that all you need is love, but then reduce it to when a man loves a woman? See, it takes a brave heart to believe in the power of love. Uh, you can't see the power of love on that. So it takes a brave heart to believe in the power of love. I mean, if someone comes to you and says, well, love stinks, and they were to ask you, I want to know what love is. What's love got to do with it? And you'd be honest, you'd have to say, well, I'm all out of love. So at the end of the day, we're all still asking ourselves, what about love? 
See, I... Whoa. <laughs> I guess it was worth those three days. <laughs> that takes way too long. Uh, see, I think it's pretty easy for us to forget about how radical this love is that we've been invited into. In the body of Christ, it's easier to surrender to the definitions brought to us by the tide of culture. It's harder to, to grab on to what Paul has to say and live it out. Love is patient. Love is kind. Yeah, well, sometimes we think love stinks. Love hurts. But we can't afford to do that. The love Christ has given us by which we fill his house with, with love is supernatural. And if you give some thought to what actually holds our society together, at bottom, it's not often love. Uh, have you been following the news about what's going on in St. Louis? My, my hometown. An 18-year-old unarmed black man was shot dead by a policeman in broad daylight without much explanation as of yet. And people have been protesting in the streets for over a week. Last night, the police enforced a curfew that was set by the governor between midnight and 5 a.m., and they had to enforce it by launching tear gas into the crowds. This is St. Louis, Missouri. These are police enforcement officers. Times like this remind me that at the end of the day, what really holds us in line, regardless of stripe, something as simple as coercive force. And then on the other side of the globe, we're watching our own brothers and sisters endure this terrible suffering and hardship, not just Gaza, but also in Iraq and Syria at the hands of Islamic extremism. You know, hundreds of thousands of Christians and other minorities have been forced from their homes by the Islamic State. This is an incredible picture. I think it defines this moment. The Globe and Mail had that on their cover last week of a Yazidi girl resting after she walked through the desert to the Syrian border. And they're using the same kinds of tactics as the Holocaust. They're marking homes of Christians with their version of, this means Christian, it's a, um, an N for Nazarene, but to them it would mean this is a Christian home, and beside it it says, now the property of ISIS, the Islamic State. They're telling people to convert, pay a fine, or face the sword. Christian communities that have been in existence for 1,600 years have been completely emptied of Christians. And as we think about that, over here, so comfy, I thought about the aggressors this week when reading Paul, as he says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but have not love, I gain nothing. Crystal and I have followed this pretty closely, and these are people inspired precisely by the call to give their bodies over to hardship so they may boast. But it doesn't take long to realize that what unites them is the machinery of war and violence, not love. And at the same time, however, they are so sincere in their faith. They seem to believe with such great conviction that what they're doing is worthy of God. In fact, if you listen to what they say about their caliph and the allegiance they're giving to him, it sounds a lot like the kind of fervor that probably spread 2,000 years ago when a Jewish rabbi started saying the kingdom of God had come through him. And just like Jesus' sacrificial death inspired a host of others who were similarly willing to die for their faith, these people are animated by a similar conviction. So what is the difference? In one of the videos we watched, one of the ISIS leaders pats his machine gun and says, 
I swear to God that the Islamic State cannot be established without weapons. That's the difference. Christianity undid the Roman Empire, not by their weapons, but by the gospel of peace, by the depth of their love, the kind of love that wouldn't falter under any threat of violence and could actually go so far as to forgive their captors and those who put them to death by the sword. Christians approach martyrdom as the ultimate point of surrender in the face of hatred to love. That's quite a different way to die than by strapping a bomb to your chest. So I'll repeat what I said earlier. Definitions don't set the thermostat unless they prove their worth in practice. This definition here in chunk 2 of 1 Corinthians 13, it's been tried and tested by generations of Christians before us who have faced incredible challenges and is presently being tried as true by Christians around the world still today. So if we find ourselves easily influenced by what our culture says is love, maybe it's because we've grown too comfortable, too complacent here, which leads us to chunk three. I'm kind of going fast because it's getting late. I'm hot and sticky and uh, I don't know how you guys are doing. Do you need a break? Because we could stand up together and because chunk three, you heard it, right? Thank you for reading that, April. And it was so, like, dense. So we're starting another sermon in some ways. Is that okay? All right, you're nodding, so it's your own fault. <laughs> All right, uh, we're going to live forever living out the reality of Paul's words here in chunk three. So I'm afraid we can't summarize it in a helpful way. Love never fails, Paul says, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. We know in part and prophesy in part. When the completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. What is going on here? Well, like I said earlier, Paul is doing nothing less than summarizing all of cosmic history. And his overall point is that in the end of time, when we are finally brought face to face with God, Even the good things we've been able to do for each other in the body of Christ, even that stuff is just going to fade in the light of love made perfect. So do not miss the big picture. Don't get too comfortable. The gifts that God has given to his church are provisional. Prophecy and tongues and words of knowledge and all that, they're like superpowers that we get to use on each other so that even while we are stuck in the not yet, We can still live in unity in the already, as one flesh, as members of the body of Christ. See, the spiritual gifts are temporal because they're aimed at getting us to the final day, when we won't need them anymore. When Christ appears in glory and we are finally united to him as a bride to a bridegroom. That's the hope of Christianity. The common goal of all of our lives, this side of heaven, is to prepare and purify ourselves for the wedding supper of the Lamb when we will seek our Creator face to face. 1 John 3 puts it this way. 
Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. This is really good stuff because we don't often talk about it these days. We seem to be a lot more interested in talking about social causes in the church, various campaigns for this or that issue. And when we do find ourselves talking about the hope of heaven, of seeing God, it often sounds as if we think John's wrong. Actually, we do know what we will be and what we will be doing. We've started talking about our final destiny as if it's going to be a lot like this life, but way better. Heaven does come down here after all, it's true. Which means God doesn't seem to want to just snatch us away to a cloud somewhere playing harps in paradise while the rest of the planet gets burnt up to a crisp. That's true. Fair enough. And I would hardly want to downplay the way scriptures teach us to believe firmly by faith in the continuity between what we do here and what we're doing for the kingdom and creation. We are practicing for the next life every time we bring God's kingdom here and now. But Paul's comments to the Corinthians, especially here in chunk 3, they're like a, a, a reminder, a big picture reminder, that part of what we should be practicing in this life, perhaps the most important part, is an active spirituality that fosters a certain kind of faith, hope, and love. The faith, hope, and love that are aimed at one day seeing our Creator face to face. Paul says this is what makes us grow up, to leave behind childish things, to become mature. If you're not convinced yet, just a bit later in his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul says in chapter 3, now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all know that part. We love that part of the verse. But he goes on, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate or reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Anybody? My mind's already blown. I mean, we can't really grasp this. But the final vision of God that we anticipate there, when we are face-to-face with God, that's the consummation of what must begin here. The day when we see him as he is will be the fulfillment of what we've practiced here by faith and despite the way sin currently distracts us. So the question is, are you fostering that kind of faith, hope, or love? Does it excite you, this idea? Does it animate everything you do for God in the kingdom? Do you know what it means to contemplate the Lord's glory in the face of Christ? Do we know what that means? Have I lost anybody? Am I starting to lose you? feels like I should be. So I'm going to make this really practical, okay? And I know I'm going to go a little bit long, but this is why I said it was another sermon, because this stuff is really deep, and Paul makes it the conclusion of his chapter on... Anyway, all right. Here you go. Unless you are a robot, you are composed of body and soul. You are born with eyes in your head and your heart. You have physical senses, and you have spiritual senses, which means it's no use trying to convince yourself you're not into the kind of spirituality Paul's talking about. All of us spend time in spiritual contemplation of different things to different degrees. So maybe it's your bank account. 
you fix your eyes on your finances and then find yourself contemplating the crushing weight of your debt. It's a spiritual presence you carry with you throughout the day. In fact, it might even wake you up at night. Or maybe you have the opposite problem, and despite all you've been given, you, according to the metaphor, only have eyes for more. More money, more material possessions, more clothes, whatever. Going to the mall is like going to therapy for some people. Tell me, that isn't a form of spiritual contemplation. Maybe it's your body image, and you can't see past this flaw or that wrinkle. And despite being made so beautiful in the image of God, you stand in the mirror and you contemplate this or that floppy piece of skin. So do not be misled. Our culture is setting thermostats for our spiritual contemplation. But let's go further here. If I've convinced you you already know how to practice spiritual contemplation, the kind of spirituality, at least in form, that Paul is talking about with the Corinthians that he says should be aimed at Christ, if you already know how to do that in structure, let's go further and talk about how what you are contemplating is transforming you, whether you know it or not. It's a spiritual principle, just like the biological principle that you are what you eat. So here, too, you are what you see. You're being transformed by what you set your eyes on. But it may not always be from glory to glory. There's a particular form of contemplation that our technology has made ubiquitous. And I'm glad the kids are gone. (laughs) Because you know what I'm going to talk about. Pornography. If you spend any amount of time on a computer... You actually have to dodge the assault of pornography that seeks you out. It's a major task these days to protect a family from the onslaught of porn. We all have our struggles, and I could admit my own, but there's a reason I'm bringing it up right now. Even our secular psychologists will tell us that what we contemplate transforms us. So there's actually a phrase now in circulation, I find this interesting, to describe the transformation which leaves men impotent after chronic porn consumption. Porn-induced erectile dysfunction. Yeah, I just said that. (laughs) After contemplating so many illusions on a screen, putting faith, you might say, in an illusion, men my own age are unable to perform when finally in the presence of a real woman. What do we make of that? If you ask me, the church has failed to respond to this kind of contemplation because it has turned its moral prohibition against it, and it has failed to turn its moral prohibition against it into a positive teaching about what it is we should be looking at, should be beholding. It's failed to set the thermostat by neglecting the very conclusion to this letter on love about how we will someday come face to face with God and that all our time here is a preparation for that day. Uh, We could come at this a bit differently. Have you ever considered why you won't be able to sin in heaven? It's kind of an interesting thought that maybe we take for granted, that we won't be able to sin in heaven. Have you ever thought about why? Why not? Why does our hope of heaven somehow include this idea that we won't be able to sin? There's several ways to respond, but I want to consider that heaven's sinlessness might not just be the result of God's, you know, magical intervention. 
as if he just snapped his finger and boom, you're living in glory. What if, what if, I'm just saying what if, heaven's sinlessness actually turns out to be more of a natural consequence of our finally being given the object of our faith that we've reflected to each other down here. And that in rapture, sin's power to distract will be nullified. When did Peter sink? When he took his eyes off Jesus. Well, in heaven, there will be nothing to take our eyes off Jesus. So are you looking to Jesus? Is the question we're asking now. By faith. Then we will see by sight. By now we see by faith, Paul says. Does that make a bit more sense? (laughs) It's really challenging, isn't it? It's been challenging me for the past year or so because it's something that jumps off the page once you start thinking about it a bit more. Paul talks about it quite a lot, actually. Um, There's a good quote I found that helps in this way. Alan Redpath says, um, to see Jesus by faith in hopes of seeing him by sight. I have a clear view of Jesus, he says. I have seen him, felt him, and I have known him in a far deeper way than simply by the outward physical appearance. I have felt the reality of his life burn in my heart. I have seen in Christ the glory of a life that is totally submitted to the sovereignty of God. That glory has begun to take hold of me, and I have begun to see that his is the one life God expects of any man made in his image. I have seen the marks of the cross upon him, and by his grace the marks of the cross have been put on me. I'm no longer my own. I'm bought with a price, redeemed by his blood. Yes, I have seen him. Not in the outward physical sense only, but in the inward sense of a deep spiritual reality. I have had a clear view of Jesus, and my life will never be the same. The good news of the gospel is that the means for our sinlessness have already been given to us in the face of Christ. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians, the God who said, let there be light, and there was light, that God, he made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Jesus told Thomas, you believe because you have seen. And he's speaking to us when he says, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. We may not be able to put our hands in his side, but we have seen Jesus. Heaven's delight, to wrap this up, Heaven's delight will be the fruit and reward of lovers who are finally brought face to face after so much war and disruption. For now, we know in part. We prophesy in part. We see through a glass darkly. We see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Those are the kinds of thoughts we should have in mind when Paul ends his letter, his chapter on love. He says all that because regardless of how we put the gifts he's given us into practice, one day we will all see God as he is. And if we're among those who have lived in response to his love, if we are those who have seen him by faith here and let his glory take hold of us, then we don't ever have to be afraid of hearing those words, depart from me, I never knew you. 
because he will invite us to the place he's prepared for us to live in the light of his glory, where we will know fully, even as we are fully known, where our vision of God won't be obscured by the temptations of sin, where we won't need prophets to call us to repentance. We won't need teachers to keep us from error. We won't need that stuff anymore because those gifts were for the sake of the journey in the meantime. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. God, you give us way more than we can handle. You put out a banquet before us, and we're lucky to grab a few morsels. But it's my prayer that by your Spirit, Lord, you would teach us to feast and keep us feasting on the glory of your Word, who is your Son, the testimony of whom we have in Scripture. God, we pray that your Spirit would unite us in love, that we would be pliable putty in your hands, that we would not let sin distract us from seeing your face in the face of each other. Call us, God, in the same love that set the captives free when you were physically present. Lord, let that same love be exercised among us. We can call each other into your glory to praise you and worship you as you deserve and to anticipate that final day when we will see you. Lord, foster a hope in our hearts. Fan it into flame. A hope and a desire to be finally made one with you. In our flesh, we will see you, says back in Job. Unbelievable. Let us join that hope of all Christians, God, to be made one with you, even as now we have the gifts to be one on the way. Release the gifts in this place, God. Thank you that you haven't left us as orphans, but that the Spirit is here. My God, I pray that you would manifest your love to each heart in this room personal sense of that glory, of that presence. Lord, would you manifest it in such a way that we would not be um, tempted to believe the lie that love is an ungraspable thing. Let this be a house of love right now to each heart who needs to feel it. I pray that so sincerely. So sincerely, God, that if there's love in a house, it's a palace for sure. Let this become a palace, and it has been. It has been a palace.
What a wonderful feast this morning. As a good elephant. Thank you, Alec. Um, Jesus said, when you go, announce the kingdom of God has arrived. The kingdom of God is among you. And we announced that when we started the service this morning. And I want to say it again. The kingdom of God is here. His presence is here. Um, we've seen him. Maybe not with our physical eyes, but we've seen him today. And so that kingdom is, is about healing. It's, it's always in breaking. It's always invading. It's always intercepting. And so we just uh, want to just be open to the Holy Spirit, just continuing to work if you need prayer felt very strongly that the Lord just wanted to reveal his love. John, 1 John 4 says, this is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us. And that's where, that's the journey. It's just learning, the growing experience of learning that we are an object of it. an incredible lover who loves us and cherishes us and values us. And that lifelong journey, of course, as we learn that, that love on to to value those around us and to live this this life so i just felt like the lord wanted to minister to some people just in that area just loneliness and just that house that uh, where nobody lives thing you know our life can be like that our life can be a house where nobody lives we're stranger to ourselves. and i uh, just, just i hear the words jesus saying i want to befriend you i want to be your friend can I be your friend uh, to some of us today? If you need healing or just if there's there's things that you're facing, the gifts of the Spirit are given in this already not yet time where in our frailty, in our humanity, we just, we need empowering to love. We need empowering to, to trust. We need, sometimes we see Jesus as Peter did, but those waves come and hide him and that's when our sister or our brother comes alongside of us and can, encourages us with a word of prophecy, a word of encouragement. And like Bonhoeffer said, sometimes encouragement in the, in the mouth of a brother or sister is ten times as powerful as when we receive it from the Lord ourselves just because of our humanity, our frailty. So we just, just want to bless you. If you want to come forward for prayer, you can. If, if, you, if you feel more comfortable just asking somebody that you're with or that you trust in your home group or whatever to pray for you if you could go to them but I'm going to bless you thanks for your patience with uh, the children today it was uh, summertime and just learning to do church during this time is sometimes a challenge so some of you may need to go and uh, get your kids but as many of you can get prayer and if you need to come back and do that that would be great too why don't we stand together bless you. May the grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of the Father, the love of the Father who said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, it is with loving kindness that I have drawn you. And 
so, Lord, may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit, that we are the same family, that we have the same flesh, that we eat from the same table. It's that same blood that has washed us and cleansed us and given us access. The communion given to us through the Holy Spirit from God our Father who's above all and through us all and in us all. Grace, love, communion, community. May it be with you as you walk this week immersed, as Samuel said, immersed in God. When you're baptized, you're, you're immersed in God. May you be immersed in the love of God this week and empowered to live a God-honoring, Jesus-centered life that brings fruit, that extends good news. May you good news everywhere you go just by who you are. Lord, let the fragrance of you be through us in every place we ask. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. God bless you.